I think trying to trying to capture what the gospel is without understanding at least what the Bible is is a is a hard task. And then, like you had said, what the Word of God is, what this what this uh, what this seed is, or what this uh, essence is, is really challenging without the the rest of it as well. And so, I think there's kind of a demarcation challenge. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three belt pastors, Alex, Kim, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and the Christian faith. Recover what's really wonderful about it. We have a friend with us today, Mike Harper. He's been listening in. He's got some questions for us. He's got a background in both theology and in philosophy. And so he's going to um, fire away with some zingers to help us clarify what in the world we're saying, maybe make some clarifications, maybe sharpen our thinking. Um, so Mike, thank you for listening. You're one of our precious listeners, highly valued. Thanks for your, and thanks for taking the time to give us feedback. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I had a great time visiting with you. And when you told me you were doing a podcast and some of the provocative things you guys have been talking about, I was like, man, that's awesome. And then you invited me. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. I also want to kind of preface this by saying number one, too, is that um, you have a podcast, you have a lot of episodes. I haven't listened to all of them. So many of the questions I might've asked might've already had answers. And so I, I want to preface that. And then also I'm a guest too. So I want to try to be humble and, and, and kind of listen to what you guys have to say. So those, that's hopefully the heart from which those questions kind of drive. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure that your questions are the kind of questions other people are asking as they listen to some of the more provocative points being made. And if we have addressed them, it's good for us to address them again, uh, for sure. So we're, we're really welcome your questions. Um, do you want to start or do you want me to pick up what you emailed us? It's pick one or start at the beginning, or do you want to just have to dive in and kind of frame it however you'd like to frame it? Um, I think, I mean, I, I'm happy with you kind of moderating it Kent, from the, the email that I sent. I kind of laid it out a little bit about how I had tried to think about it. So I'm, I'm happy with you just kind of handling it and going from there. Okay. And, and plus that's, that's what you guys have seen as well. So let's, let's just use it that way. Okay. And also we're, we're not in a hurry. We can take our time. Uh, as far as I know, we're all available again next Tuesday morning, so we can just be slow and we only get through one or two. That's fine. Uh, we may make lots of notice. All right. So. Number one, question number one, uh, you, it, it is uh, about the Bible. And the question is, if the Bible is not a reliable way to define the Christian faith, which is something we've claimed, then what is reliable to do? Meaning, you said, meaning what sources, people, or experiences do we rely upon to define the Christian faith? Nathan, would you say that it's true that we have said that the Bible is not a reliable way to define the Christian faith? Um, well, whether or not we've said it, I think that's the impression that we've left. That's the message that I put out there. So it's, it's all the same. Um, I would, I would say that it's not a reliable way to, um, outline the Christian walk. So the, the life, if you're going to, if you're looking to the Bible for prescriptions on it, how you should live, um, then there, you're going to find times where there'll be things that just may work against you or may be hard to understand, or you may find yourself at odds with other people over it. And yet you, and yet the, the, the Christian walk that you teach us is something you learn from the Bible. Yes. Is that Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Maybe that's not, maybe that's why this is confusing because it's because Nathan's a Bible guy. Like we eat very much lead Bible. I mean, he just uses it. He's always referencing the Bible. So this is confusing, uh, confusing fully. I'm vitally. Yeah. Right. And oh, it, I, I got that from reading the Bible. So that's the irony. Is yeah. That, um, yeah. That was, that was probably one of my, uh, confusions. Like you can't, you had mentioned was, um, it seems to be prescriptive. It's obviously descriptive. It, it paints a picture of like, even like maybe what the next question talks about, about kind of what the essential aspects of the gospel are. And then through many podcasts, it's, you know, as you guys go along, it's often referenced and used right. as, as kind of justification for various things. And so I felt like, you know, 
what you know, maybe maybe a little bit of consistency issues, but just trying to think about how does how how if it doesn't do that, what what do other sources do we want to rely upon? But it seems like that tends to be the thing that we kind of rely upon when we kind of talk about many of the things that go on in the podcast. So that was curious to me. Yeah, I would say that the Bible is um, inspired and all of that and authoritative. It's just not the definitive and final um, word of God, revelation of God. Um, And we've mentioned this in the podcast that when the phrase word of God is used, in the New Testament that it refers to the, and, and I think you did a great job and we'll talk about that. And then what is the definition of the gospel? But the word of God, the message of God seems to be a proclamation, um, something that is being declared and Paul and the other, if we begin to say, well, this word of God. So in first Peter two or first Peter one, where he says, you've been born again of incorruptible seed. Um, as you know, not, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible as it is said, uh, as it has been said, um, you know, what is man, uh, or the works of man is like grass and flowers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which you have heard, which was played to you at the beginning. And so there's this charisma uh, in the Greek, this preaching that constituted the word of God for the writers of the New Testament. Um, and so when we speak of the word of God, I, we would be more biblical if by word of God, we meant the proclamation, at least most of the time, the author of the Hebrew letter speaks of the word of God as, uh, referring to the Psalms. Um, and, and so certainly that which God utters is the word of God, but, uh, most of the time that message is is the proclamation. And so we could say that the Bible is the word of God about the word of God, but the word of God is, is the ultimate, it is the revelation of God. And so if what we think we're reading in the word of God about the word of God disagrees with the inherent, um, implications of the word of God, then we would say, well, we we obviously didn't understand that. Right. So, uh, let's take slavery. Right. Let's go back in time and say, is slavery right or wrong? And we could, so we could go to the word of God about the word of God and say, well, slaves should obey their masters and everything like that. But then we go to the word of God and we say, but the people are of inherent dignity and worth and that Jesus died for them and that his whole purpose is to set them free. So what is the final word of God? What is the ultimate word of God say? And now which one do we follow? Do we, you know, do we, do we put on the gray suits and say, we're going to stand for the word of God. And then when, but is that the ethic, is that the ultimate ethic or was that contextual? Was that something that bit a time? Like, what do you see going on there in, in that argument that he's making? As someone who does ethics, uh, you know, within the sort of traditional philosophical framework, what do you see going on there in that argument? Um, I, I think. I think, uh, I mean, part of it is, I think it's challenging to kind of decipher what, what that word of God is. I mean, I think that's a, maybe a theme of some of, of the questions a little bit too, is trying to, trying to get at, like, I think you've, you've mentioned the word of God. I think also in some of the podcasts you've mentioned just even, even the person of Jesus being the word of God. And so trying to understand who this person is and, and the dynamic and the impact and understanding who he is, is a part of us living out the gospel. And I, hopefully I'm being true to what you guys have said in many times. And so I think, I think I, I, I resonate with that. I think that that's really true. And I also resonate Nathan with something you said is that, is that the Bible isn't completely sufficient for living and understanding the Christian life. I think we can draw principles from it that help help us apply and, 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 and extend what it says to our normal everyday lives. And so I resonate with those things for sure. I think trying to, trying to capture what the gospel is without understanding at least what the Bible is, is a, is a hard task. And then like you had said, what the word of God is with this, with this, uh, what this seed is or what this uh, essence is is really challenging without the, the rest of it as well. And so I think there's kind of a demarcation challenge that I have is like, 
well, what exactly is it without actually having the whole expanse of it? It seems like we tried to, or at least in the, in the, in the conversations you've had, you've tried to boil it down to something, but then, you know, that's the challenge is it's boiled down to this, but then how do we know that's what it is? And then without actually using the full extent of the rest of it, that's been a challenge I had. And then I think, um, I think the other, the other aspect of that is, and I'm glad you used the, the example of slavery is like, how do you build an ethic off of this? And I think, um, the, the challenge is how, how, Again, I, I've used the word generating principles that we can glean from the scriptures, even though there was a time and place when slavery was an institution, uh, a different slavery than we would talk about in, in the South of in the South of the United States, but still an institution. And so try, how do you, again, how do you make sense of something that we can go back and look upon and say, yeah, that, that at least now we understand that that's, that the. It's a, it's a terrible institution the way that we understand it. But again, it wasn't necessarily that it was a part of an economic system, honestly. And so how do you, how do you make sense of that? Though I think that's still a fair question. I think there's ways that we can look at the Bible and interpret that and understand it and understand why it remained in place with, that, with the intention that that would not be the ultimate way that God would want to unfold his economy ultimately. He's, he's willing to allow it given the economy that it was in, but he would prefer obviously that, uh, there would be something better than that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it just, it seems to me that in having these conversations say, you know, with skeptics who would say, well, the Bible is in favor of slavery. How do you counter that if the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and life? Uh, and then we're left to kind of argue the Bible against the Bible. And that it, it seems to discredit us a little bit when we're dealing with unbelievers, uh, in other issues that are more nuanced, say women's roles in the church, um, where we're still going to, I mean, it, yeah, we miss out that if, if this were 1860, we'd be having a heated conversation about whether slavery is enforced in the Bible. Wouldn't all assume that it's not. You know, we'd all, some of, some of us would be very vehement that we're really going to obey God and we can't be against slavery, you know? Um, and, and it, yeah, it is, so I, I, I think that we have this bias that's based on our particular moments in history and say, so, well, obviously everybody knows that slavery is wrong, but not, not everybody has ever, has always known slavery is wrong. And, and so, uh, let's take a, make more contemporary when we come to like women's roles and, and um, I think the preponderance straightforward instruction in the new Testament is women should be silent in the church. Um, what do you do with that? And, and, and maybe, maybe just say, well, women should be silent in the church and they can be CEOs and president of the United States. But when it comes to church, they need to put on a dress and, um, cross their legs and bring a covered dish and, and let's go back and live on a prairie, you know, I, uh, and, and so what do we do? Yeah. So using that example, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, I mean, I think that's probably one of the more challenging aspects too. I think I don't have, I haven't worked that out myself in terms of how to answer that question per se, but I, again, I think there, I think there are definitely ways of, of interpreting, particularly that, that particular aspect to, of that passage to understand it in ways that that make sense. But I also, and I think, I think there's, probably challenges. And I think we live in a, and, and I think we, you guys have advocated this quite often is that we live in a, uh, a culture, a church culture where there, there are certain, certain issues like this one, probably where there's some, probably some liberty. And again, I mean, maybe there's even more of an internal debate sometimes about this particular issue. <laughs> we see it uh, in a variety of different ways. And, uh, and I think, I think you're right from the outside looking in, I agree that it could be very, very confusing if not, you know, seen as immoral from the outside looking in, but I think on the inside, I think it can, continues to be kind of an internal debate about how we, how we look at the role of women and men and leadership and authority 
is super challenging. I agree. I totally agree. I, I, I think we, I want to continue to do work in that. I mean, uh, we, we just encountered this at the church. It's funny. You guys talk about being three failed pastors. I'm probably somewhat of that because our church closed recently as well. Um, but we had this issue probably about a year ago. We had to try to kind of walk through some of those issues. And again, we didn't do a, a super in-depth type of understanding of this, but we did spend some time talking about it. And I, I, I hope within the realm of Christian, we can see that there is things that we do disagree about and that there's liberty in that. And I think that's one of the things too, is just trying to, what are the things we're going to stand upon and, and be, uh, stand firmly upon and be together about versus things that it's definitely difficult to, to come down on a hard stance and we have some liberty about those things. So for sure, I think that's, that's a really, it's a, it's a good issue to bring up and talk about. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's semantically, I'm, I'm just an ideologue. And so for me, semantically, if you say the Bible is the vital authority in all matters of faith and life, and there's a very several very definitive passages that say verbatim women should be found in church that that is equivalent to everything else you know it, it would say well that command is not as authoritative as this one that says we should love our neighbor um how where do we get that how do we how do we arrive at that if we say the bible by virtue of it being in the bible it is the will of god now no you you don't have liberty on that and don't you dare try to innovate in that or deviate in that, or you have become factious and heretical and all of the things that the Bible condemns. And so it, it becomes a challenge. And I, I'm saying this to somebody who came from a very legalistic, like I split churches over women wearing the veil during prayer. Okay. Uh, why? Because first Corinthians a lot of men people, you know, it's, we had to, we, we just had to do what it said. And, and I thought I knew what it said and I still think I know what it says. So there you go. But you know, yeah, but we disobey passages in the new Testament, like women should cover their heads with prey, um, and continue to call ourselves faithful Christians uh, along the way. So I, I think I was aware from your, well, let me, so look, let, let me say how we do that in, in the church today, one of two things, we, we disobey certain passages by saying, by observing we say we observe that this passage um is only relevant to the cultural setting in which it was was written mm -hmm. so culture we say culture uh conditions that so we can disobey that right or we say in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things love and so um we decide what the essentials are this is a problem, I think. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is a problem with that argument. We get to decide what the essentials are, and we conveniently decide which ones are non-essentials, the things we don't want to divide over and split over. Um, and we, you know, that, and so that sounds like a good argument on the face of it, but who gets to decide what the essentials are and what the non-essentials are, which means the Bible's not the final. Uh, yeah, so if, if, that's, if that's our standard, then it, it's all based once again on any one person's interpretation of what the Bible's seems to be saying. <laughs> right. I think our, our podcast has been saying that the essential is the gospel. This message that comes out of the Bible that is not to be equated with the Bible. Yeah. Right. Um, so the essentials are not a variety of teachings in the new Testament, like the gospel, the Bible is the word of God, marriages between man and a woman. Uh, I know based on any church website. The Bible is inerrant. Uh, uh, you shouldn't get drunk. I mean, there's like, you know, statement of faith. Right. right. The essentials are not the things, a long list of things that are important to us as 21st century American evangelicals. So right to review and update. Right. And we, and we look back over history and we see that, that revision and update. There is only one essential and it is the, the word of God preached by the early church which formed the church and grew the church before there was even the New Testament. Right. Well, and if we really want to be New Testament Christians, New Testament Christians didn't have a New Testament. Um, so we'd have to, we have to peel back and just, you know, go with Genesis to Malachi, um, and down at Kerygma. Um, and that's what New Testament Christianity was. Um, 
And he were a bunch of people who decided to spin off their own synagogue on the following day of the week. Um, the church was just synagogue. Um, and they didn't have scrolls. So this was synagogue without scrolls. That's church. So to your question, you know, uh, what sources people experiences do we rely on to define the Christian faith? What did they? They didn't have the letters of Paul yet or of anybody. And um, they didn't really have ready access. Yeah. So you go and you listen real hard in synagogue on Saturday. You try to remember what was said. Then you go on Sunday and you say, hey, uh, found Jesus in the reading at synagogue yesterday. And, and here's Jesus. Um, so you had to remember it. Uh, if, if you had a scroll, you were strange and, and wonderfully blessed. But for the most part, these synagogues didn't have their 50 books of the Hebrew scriptures to, to refer to or to exposit. Um, it seemed that they relied on other things uh, for truth. And, and there are places in the New Testament where there's some sort of heresy. There's some sort of question about who is, who are the authentic Christians. And it's, it's never, well, go back to the Bible and the ones that are following the Bible are right. It is going back to the kerygma, the one that says that Jesus has come in the flesh, you know, that the one that, that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the one that says Jesus is accursed is, is yeah. the evil spirit. So. It always, the, the doctrine had to do with the contents of the, of the kerygma and, uh, and those who were and it. And I think that what this does is it gives us the opportunity to really obey what's important in, in, uh, it seems in the Bible and that is to love each other. Um, and in my experience, the Bible has worked against that command. Um, and I, it's, it, it, it good and right and holy. I'm not saying that Bible is bad, just like Paul. So what is the human following the Bible has worked yeah, against? We, we've, taken, we've taken the Bible. Uh, yeah. I'm going to love you until you disagree with what I think the new Testament says, then I will hound you. I will defame you. I will hunt you and make your life miserable. I should have. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I think, but I'll say, and, and I say this in loud at the bottom of the email, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think you're, you're being hyperbolic a little bit, but I think there's, I yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're true. And, and I think there's probably incidences of that for sure. And, and I don't want to be that way either. And, and, the, and the disagreements I have with, with people as well, I want to hopefully have some sort of, you know, winsome humble approach to in disagreement, right? Hopefully I'm, hopefully I can dem demonstrate maybe some of that today, if there's some disagreement, but sure. I, I think, I think when you talked earlier about how, you know, if, 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 if the presupposition is that, you know, the Bible is the word, the final authoritative word of God, and then, you know, you, you go to specific passages that we have challenges with today. I think, I mean, I think. Uh, and, and like Kent alluded to, you know, how do we set up what's essential and then what's not essential? Um, I, I agree. I think there's, there's challenges with, with that as well. But I also, I mean, I think, I think Jesus demonstrated with the Pharisees and he, he talked about that there are higher things in the law. There are higher things. There are more important things. There is a gradation in terms of how you see certain things. And I think you have to look at these things whenever there's an ethical conflict that comes up, right? You have to, you have to determine what principle. And again, I, I'm not saying there's an easy answer to, to determining these things. And there's definitely, you know, and, and maybe we can easily agree on some of them. But I think when you have an ethical conflict of some sort, you, you're going to have two principles pitted against each other that are both possibly biblical principles. And, um, you can either say, you know, we can't see our way through this, or in some ways you're, and I think this is what Jesus meant is that there are things that are more important to what we might take to be, uh, in line with the heart of what God wants versus things that are lesser important. And so we've got to try to figure out what that is in some sort of ethical conflict that comes about. And, and I, I, I think 
a lot of times, and you know, if we talk about some of the contemporary aspects of where we find ourselves in Christian culture is even within progressive and conservative Christianity, right? Um, I think a lot of times we value, we value a certain thing, but then we have certain principles that kind of pit itself against each other. One side holds a certain principle higher than the other versus, you know, the principle that the other side holds. And so, um, trying to get about how we resolve conflicts is a super challenging aspect. And, but I think, uh, you know, the premise that of starting out with, this is the final authoritative word of God and then going to a specific thing. Um, again, I think at that point, you're going to have to decipher what is, what is, what is a principle? What's the principle or what's the conflict in, at, uh, at hand here? And then what are the competing principles? And then trying to figure out exactly which of those we would probably deem as more important and then try to follow that. And so I don't know if that's a, a good way. That's pretty ambiguous as well. I, I'm kind of critiquing you guys for being ambiguous, but here I am being ambiguous. You know what I think would be really great is, I don't know if we should do it now or another time, but I, I, would, I think it would be really great to try to do that. Try to flesh that out, um, yeah, yeah, and, and, and take up the case of the current controversy in the Methodist Church and how there are churches voting to leave the denomination because they don't want to participate in a denomination that's going to have um, gay pastors who will perform same-sex marriages. Uh, I think that's a really, really great like case study. For us to sort of try to work through all of these, like these competing principles, competing priorities, differences and disagreements, and how you can handle them. Yeah. Should we do that? Hey, someday. One thing I've noticed, I'd like to respect my time that he spent on on these questions and and try to answer them. So uh, I I want to be uh, just kind of definitive. I'm going to go on record in it. And I'm going to attempt an answer to your first one since we've been talking for half an hour and I really uh, answered it at all. So, but what source? So, obviously, the gospel, Paul in Galatians 1, he says, if somebody comes and preaches another gospel, then the one I proclaim, the one you've received, uh, let it be accursed. So, the Galatian church, uh, most scholars think that's the first one written. So, Paul isn't going to say, remember, go back to that letter I wrote to the Ephesians. And, you know, he, all they had was that. Keep in mind now, though, and, and a lot of us are trying to get back to what Christian, Christianity was, right? This is like, uh, it, we were kind of aggressive in that way. Um, but I don't really think the Galatian church's problem wasn't so much that they failed to um, study the scriptures or to teach some element, but perhaps that they had actually laid some scriptural command to talk of the faith in the gospel, then call it. So Paul says the kerygma, the, the thing I preached and the thing you received, that is the authoritative, definitive, don't let somebody come and lay anything on top of that. And if they then tell with them, does that sound, is that fair? So I, I think that the word is that, is the authority that the, when I say word, I mean proclamation, it's not bound to the Bible in that it is so simple that I can, I can tell it to you and you can repeat it. And it can be an oral tradition that travels next to it's also in the Bible, but it also lives in baptism and it lives in the communion. There are other elements about Christian history, Christendom that have the gospel resident within it. Um, so the gospel seems to be that objective, definitive standard. Um, that, and, and it's the reason that I think we have a problem with that proposition is that we don't think it is substantive enough to guide people's lives. It's like, okay, that's a nice story, but now tell me how to live. And I would say that that's a fault in us and not in the gospel. That, the, that most of the New Testament, as I read it, is Paul expositing the gospel into circumstances. Yeah, very, maybe a very cultural snapshot of, you know, place and time with the, you know, the Galatian church or the Ephesian right. church. But for each of those situations, Paul's applying the same gospel to whatever you know, conundrum or, you know, community issue that they're facing. Right. And so I think uh, the point that we've tried to make in this podcast is that we can do the same thing. It's not that, uh, you know, scripture is not useful or can't have things that we draw from. And I, I think the New Testament writers, even Christ did this in his own teaching. He, 
you know, one of the mysteries of the gospel is that it, it was hidden in the Old Testament, right? And that now they're going back in the scriptures that they had in their own time, you know, the Old Testament scriptures, and they're looking and they're saying, oh, wow, yeah. look, the gospel was hidden here the whole time. We just didn't see it. Like, here's Jesus. Yeah, here, here, here we can see God's, I don't know, you know, heart for the nations and, and for redemption that, you know, in the story of Maurice, you know, that even then, you know, we see this picture of what God was ultimately going to do in Christ. In Genesis, we see this picture of what God was ultimately going to do in Christ. And then um, from that, they, you know, they're, they're learning something a lot deeper than maybe just some prescribed traditions. They're, they're learning this whole um, way of seeing how God works and wants to work in our lives that we can apply to things that the Bible never even anticipated. Like, like you said, that's marriage, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. or women being CEOs, you know, why you preach on Sundays, you know, right. or eating those types of situations that, you know, Paul wasn't dealing with that when he was writing the letters, right? He was dealing with a different problem, but we're dealing with problems today that we can't always just go grab a scripture off the shelf and try to apply it directly to our situation. So that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. So now we're at Mike's question number two, which is the gospel. Yes. And I think it would do well. Can't you want to just read? Cause I think, I think you articulated the gospel really well. And um, let's just go with that because that's as good as I could. Mike writes to us in many podcasts, the gospel was often referred to and probably clearly defined. Let's try to clearly express it uh, for me here. If it's what I remember you guys saying, it's captured by a holistic and deep understanding of Jesus as the God man who willingly took on humanity, lived a sinless and exemplary life and taught on and introduced the kingdom of God, willingly embraced his mission to lay down his life for us, demonstrating God's love and selfless sacrifice and rose from the dead. So um, I guess my next question is, you know, is that is that what you're saying the gospel is, if this authoritative message that defines the Christian life? Yes, uh, it is the death and resurrection of Christ. I, I think that, and there's so many different statements of it in the New Testament. Christ and him crucified is the shortest um, shorthand that I can find uh, in there. But there are a little bit longer ones, you know, that Christ um, died for sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared. And, and, and so scriptures become this witness to the gospel. Um, yeah. Obviously, Paul's referring not to the New Testament, not to 66 books, but to the 50 books, 39 that we have now. But um, so, yeah, they're a witness to it. But what the gospel becomes then for the Christian life, the way I understand it, if we just say it is his death and resurrection, let's just go with that. And and there are statements of it that unpack the implications of those two events. I think that those are the piston, the love and the dove of the Christian life. And then how we understand the implications are this, the depth and, and a reading of scripture, new and old, give us that depth. But the perimeter of the gospel is Jesus' death for our sakes and his resurrection. Um, and, and so in Romans, I like this, in Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 17, he talks about how they used to be slaves of sin. And in Romans six seventeen, he says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Now, when I was in the Church of Christ, we saw the pattern as Matthew through Revelation, every command example, and this is their inference. That was the pattern. So don't deviate from the New Testament and my hermeneutic of it. Um, that obviously does, you know, try and that, that a completely erroneous idea. But what pattern had they come to obey? If you scooch back earlier in Romans, you know, he says, um, and he said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and, um, and therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. So there's this pattern that resurrection. And then he's saying, now count yourself dead so that you can live a righteous life. And, him, and, 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 he, and he's saying all of this in finance to what the previous religious group had as their Bible. He's saying you, 
you're not you're not beholden to the instructions in the scriptures so that you can live a righteous life. And this is for sin shall, verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. You're not under law, but under grace. And so there's a very different system in place. So I, I would say that, that, yes, the gospel is exactly what you said. And when I say it's the definitive word of God, it is the pattern by which we live our lives. It begins to kind of entertain some of the other uh, things that you asked. Um, and, and so if you look at Paul and how he, how he counsels the church, it is always died to this, live to that. Um, because Christ died, be like this. Uh, so should we sue? Should we sue our brother? Well, you know, we shouldn't sue our brother because um, Christ, though he was rich for your sake, became poor. After I treat my wife, well, Christ has the bride, and he came and laid down his life for her. You should lay down your life for your wife, you know. So these these instructions we find in the New Testament, you know, Paul is not separately receiving some revelation. Uh, there are times when he even counts, counts doubt and dispersions on his own advice when he walks too far away from the gospel. In verse 30 and 7, he says, uh, I think you should probably stick with this person. You know, I don't know. Then, you know, he, he's referring to a Jesus tradition, but uh, he's he says, I think I have the spirit of, of God in this. Uh, you don't really get that in the Quran. Oh, we think this may be best. Check it out. You know, the Quran is very definitive. Like, we're right. And uh, every, every word being written down here is thus saith the Lord. That's how the Quran exactly. works. Yeah. Right. But in the Bible, you get I've done a lot of research, and I think this is true with Luke's letters or Luke's books. Um, I, I talked to a lot of people. Uh, but it was because there was not as much at stake. They didn't think they were writing the definitive word of God. They thought they were writing about the definitive word of God. And there's a difference. And, and I think the approach to that, um, and then when it gets to how, even how they treated the scriptures that they had, you know, you look at how Paul exposits the Old Testament. That is not the inductive study method. Yeah. You know, but you look at how he, uh, he takes Deuteronomy 30 and, you know, he says, the word of God is, is near you. It is not, you know, you have to go to the bottom of the, to the abyss and you don't have to rise into the skies. And he says, that's to bring Christ up from the dead or that's to pull him down from heaven. And it's what you're, you know, you read Deuteronomy 30 and you're like, no, that's not what he was thinking. But Paul is using a crystallonic. Christological hermeneutic and overlighting, and he's really grabbing on one Hebrew word that has the same sense in Greek. In Greek, it's the brain. This this sound of the word, the spoken word, and he and and he's juxtaposing that with the written word, and he's saying even in Moses, he's saying the written word was really only kept by one person. He, the one who does these things, will live. So who has conquered death? The one who did these things. And then he says, but of the, of, you know, of, of this light that we have, he says, it says, this word is in you. It is in your heart and it's in your mouth. This word, you can say, Jesus is Lord. And so with the heart, one believes that he's raised from the dead. And with the mouth, confession is made and salvation. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10. So, you know, this isn't great inductive Bible study, but it is Christological hermeneutic, which says that the gospel supersedes the scriptures that came before it and the scriptures that come after it. Um, and, and that's what I would, would say. And so this, we live our life in this pattern. Are we doing what we're doing in, in resignation to God's will, in love for self-sacrificial love? Do we do it with confident expectation of his love for us and his vindication of us in every situation it's done out of those things and it's following the pattern and that's good enough. Sure. Here's here. I, I, I can, I can totally hear the answer to the question and kind of what you've said there for sure. I think when, when we talk about the gospel kind of being, um, uh, 
this hermeneutic that applies even to the New Testament. I think even Alex alluded to this in his previous statement was the, the challenge for us is, is trying to see how that extends in the New Testament. And I think maybe if I'm right and maybe putting words in your mouth, but um, if we don't do a good job of extending that gospel to the examples that are written in the New Testament, that's, that's a challenge of ours. We need to connect the dots, you might say, and maybe they're not connected that well based upon how you look at the New Testament, because um, maybe, maybe those extensions to whatever encounters that they were having uh, don't match up with anything that we're, we're really familiar with or experienced today. So it's hard to connect those dots, I think, sometimes mm-hmm. of how the gospel relates to those particular events. And so that's what I'm hearing you saying. Yep. And we need to, maybe we need to do a better job of how those dots connect to events in the New Testament, but we definitely have to think about how the gospel connects to events in our contemporary lives as well. Right. And trying to, trying to make those connections again, how, how, how simply we can boil down the gospel makes those connection points harder. But right. again, it's, it's, it's easier if, when we say it in a short phrase, it's easy to kind of think about it and remember it. But there's so much more to it than just that <laughs> short phrase. And we, but that's, you know, again, that's part of my challenge too, is that, that phrase, uh, has so much content to it mm-hmm. that is informed by the old Testament, that is informed by the new Testament that is informed by, and I think one of the things that maybe even boiling it down to his death and resurrection is that, is it doesn't talk about the life that we get from the gospels. I mean, the teachings that he had. And so I think Jesus has a ton of teaching that is revealed through the disciples capturing his life in the gospels. And so mm-hmm. I know who Jesus is. I knew that I knew what, I know what kind of person he is because his disciples wrote down what his life was like, or at least his public ministry was like. And so I, I mean, I can hardly think about having an understanding of who Jesus was by just the old Testament. And, and just the letters of Paul. Yeah. But when I think about the disciples who were with him, who, you know, wrote the gospels, and I'm, I'm specifically referring to the technical term gospels there. Right. And so, I mean, that, that captures a picture of, of this person who lived out those essences of those things I expressed in the question. Mm-hmm. That's where I get some content to, and that's the person I want to follow. That's the person I want to figure out what does he think about whatever I live in my life today so that I can, I can, I can be Mike Harper and this would be a Dallas Willard type of phrase. I can be Mike Harper who's empowered by God's spirit, but yet I can do, I, it would be as if Jesus were me, not him, but if Jesus were Mike Harper, what would he be doing? Cause I'm not going to do what Jesus does. I'm not Jesus. But if he were me, what would he do as Mike Harper? And so I get that content from understanding who he is, but I understand, I I totally get kind of the idea of the extension of the gospel to these various places. I want to also kind of make a case that at least somewhere in the New Testament, we, we've got this fully blown view of who Jesus is, because I think the disciples, you know, tried to capture who that was for the sake of perpetuity. They knew that they were not going to you know, um, have, not going to be able to transmit this completely orally, but, it, and they, they had a high history of the written word of God. And I think God has a, you know, has a place for writing these things down and inspiring and men and, and women to do these things. So for sure, I want to, I want to see that place, uh, carved out as well. That's a good answer to the first, the first couple of questions there, I think. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think that you know, Paul had that same dilemma where people, I, I think people accused him of, of denigrating the scriptures that, you know, he says, so do we, you know, are, are we making them obsolete? He says, no, God forbid we're fulfilling them. And so the more we see Christ in the scriptures, the greater value the scriptures take. Um, otherwise, as he says in Second Corinthians 3, they, they kill us. Yeah, when we see the spirit in the scriptures, then they are life. But when we see when we attempt to follow them as line item rules and commands, they'll kill us and nothing's we're celebrating there. Um, that's, 
I think that uh, they that Jesus, the reason that fifty five percent of all Jews are atheists, I think, is because they haven't seen the value of their own scriptures. Uh, you know, Christians we we kind of absconded with their Bible, uh, but it, it's only in that fulfillment of them in seeing the Spirit. When Paul Paul says, "Hey, it's the Spirit of the law that matters," and he says, "Then and the Spirit is Christ." The Lord is the Spirit. Um, and that gets back to your uh, mention of the Gospels. And, and I agree um, that the Gospels are wonderful and the person uh, depicted there is wonderful and the teachings are amazing. Um, nobody in, in the early church had any of that, um, at least not in the diaspora. Uh, they just had to create me. Um, and, and, and I think that's important to keep in mind because Jesus of Nazareth, is, he doesn't generalize well. Uh, if you're a woman, if you're married, if you have children, um, if you have a job, Jesus didn't do any of that, have any of that. So it's it's difficult to say, I'm going to do what Jesus would do when Jesus wouldn't do what you've done. And he wouldn't live like you live. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, does that mean you just have to carry around a bunch of guilt and say, I suck and he's awesome? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm going to worship him because he's so much better than I am. Or does that mean that we can be fully realized as um, the Christians, you know, a, a, another incarnation of God in the flesh here? Um, and, and I think that it is that we have to come down to what we've been given as spirit of Christ and not the life context or the personality of Christ. Even. Um, and so Paul says something interesting in St. Corinthians uh, 516, he says, so we no longer regard, or we now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Um, that Jesus, in First Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus has become a life-giving spirit. Um, and so the spirit of Christ, the essence of Christ it comes down to what is transferred to us in the gospel. Now we can read about this, this wonderful man, this wonderful God who has come to love us. And I, and I think that, and I think the church is impoverished when we just go to the gospels for our understanding of Jesus. We probably need to spend a lot more time in the old Testament to understand him fully who he is, because there's so much, so much wonderful content and expression of him in the old Testament. Um, but in, I love the Gospels. I'm going through the book of John right now. I'm teaching through it quite slowly. Uh, just because there's so much there. It's just a powerful, powerful. Um, I love all of that, and that's great. But I, I wanted to know for the, for the purposes of our access of, access of Christ, our ability to metabolize him, that we have to take him on a spiritual level. We can't consume the person who is Jesus of Nazareth because he just gets generalized by certain. I'm always going to be less than, um, or somehow going short. At least that would, that's been my experience, and I, I just want to be careful. I'm I'm asking: Am I living in the kind of love and trust that he had? Um, and so that's going to look different. It's going to, yeah, I, but I can fully express that love and trust as I go to my job and as I love my wife and my kids. I'm not trying to sneak away to help a homeless shelter. You know, and, and begrudging my family because I should be among the poorest of the poor. Not that, that we shouldn't do that. I've got the calls us to that. But maybe he has, maybe he's called you to live a pretty dead young, mundane life. And yet in that, I, we can fully realize the expressions of Jesus if we can metabolize him as his spirit, the seed of he, you know, he is. And that thing, this unique expression of him comes out in, in my life. In a very different time, in a very different circumstance. So I think that's just a. And then you have these catchphrases to to capture that crucifixion, love, and resurrection faith. Yeah, because the question is like, what's the gospel? The gospel of death and resurrection of Christ. And then the, then the next question is, why well, does that apply to my life? How can that be an ethic that I can live by? And you and you answer by saying, well, death and resurrection of Christ leads to my understanding of crucifixion, love, resurrection faith. That's how he loved and trusted the father therefore i with his spirit living in me can do the same in my life self-giving love um 
trusting God, you'll bring resurrection out the other side. That's a basic ethic yeah. for life. Yeah. That's the spirit of Christ that is dwelling in us that can express itself in the myriad of expressions of human life. Is that what you're arguing? Arguing, Right. And I know that that's difficult to, to apply or to feed on. I think that was one of the questions, but I'm running short on time. So let me, let me just give you uh, an example of, of this as an ethic. So Vince, in Galatians chapter two, Paul says, uh, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the base because he stood condemned. Wow. Okay. So this isn't a whole, hey, everybody's all in and that's all back and ready, then, you know, let's go liberal. This is, you know, a massive bank. But the gospel has, uh, a, you know, a, a, a nice front hand side, but it also has this, this side. And, and, and Paul says, um, he was, he stood in them. Now, if you look at what Peter did, he had been eating with the Gentiles. And then when the Jews came, he withdrew and he, and he started eating only with the Jews. He wasn't going to the Gentile houses. Okay. Is there a Bible verse that condemned? Not that I know of. There may be. Um, if anything, it condemned him for eating with the Gentiles in the first place. Um, but that wasn't Paul's problem. Paul's problem was his duplicity. Okay. Now, why would someone be duplicitous? They were trying to account for their circumstances, right? Trying to control the outcomes of their life to ensure that perhaps they weren't rejected or shamed by a set of people. Um, well, does that come out of ultimate trust in the God of the resurrection? No. Why was Peter condemned? Because he broke the covenant. He acted in unfaith. And Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not a faith is sin. He says, if you eat meat, eat it in faith. If you're a vegetarian, be so in faith. And so the, the specifics, you know, he, he even says, hey, the right answer is eating meat's okay. Unless you can't do it in faith. Then it's wrong. It's a sin. And, and so there's, there, this, this is a very um, structured and unyielding standard. It's just based on our mode. And, and so, hey, I, I'm going to a lot of things. If you tell me I'm doing this in faith and I'm thanking God for it, what can I do? Like, I'm not going to judge you for that. If it's obvious that you're not doing it in faith, like you're being pleasantous or in some ways you're was, then we should, we should call you aside. We should get in your grill. Um, and we don't need book chapter verse. We can say you're not living the gospel. You need to repent. So that's just one example. I mean, there are, when we could just go on all day. That's an example that raises more questions, I think. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today, Mike. Sure. Thank you guys for having me. We hope you will come back because you've written three more questions or four more questions. So hopefully you'll come back and we'll, we'll, we'll keep progressing through. That's all the time we've got for today. Mike actually did, our listeners, dear listeners, Mike did what we asked you to do. He That's sent right. his questions you should, to discussion at Faith Recovery Podcast. Oh, he did? Is it dot org or dot com? Dot com. Faith Discussion. Re- oh, discussion at Faith Recovery Podcast. Mike, thank you for sending us your questions. Thank you for the time today. Look forward to doing Thank you, guys. <laughs>